This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Journey of My Heart, a memoir. And the author is Marianne Shevlin, and Marianne joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Marianne. Good morning. How are you? Great to have you with us. Uh, this is quite a journey, uh, an emotional journey, uh, a heartbreaker, but at the same time, uh, great reflections and, and great help for those who go through similar kinds of challenges. Let me read what you have written. Journey of My Heart is a love story about a family and their personal struggles with a progressive terminal disease. They faced the unknown and a multitude of challenges for 19 years with a deep love, emotional courage, and determination to seek the best quality of life that they could find in their allotted time together. Well, this is your story, the story of you and your husband and his great challenges of this disease that you were there by his side. And so uh, I guess let's kind of go back, um, Marianne. And did you know, or I guess let, let me ask this question first. When did you know you needed to write a book about this? Well, with the many, many hospitalizations and major heart attacks, open heart surgery, all the major complications. And as I was sitting day after day, night after night outside of ICU and in the hospitals and visible to so many doctors, they always encouraged me, you need to write a story. Others need to know what you're going through because this has been such a long duration and you can share so much of your heart with others who've not walked down that road. And so I just started keeping a little uh, journal of each occurrence. And this kind of got me started. And with my husband's optimistic perseverance and the doctor's encouragement and so many others' support, I was able to put the story into words. How old was he when he had his first heart attack? Uh, 42 years old. 42. And that was uh, on Thanksgiving Day? Yes, yes, in 1984. My goodness. was the first, and, and looking back, you know, Thanksgiving Day was so symbolic because of the first heart attack, and then the last day of his life was in December of '03, two weeks from Thanksgiving. So it was like Thanksgiving opened and started our lives. And he also passed away on your anniversary. Yes, our 41st wedding anniversary. I found him, and he was gone, and it was extremely... Uh, I just thought I was going to die on the spot. He was the love of my life, my best friend, and we had such an amazing, amazing marriage and relationship, and what a joy to have had him in my life. 
So how many years did he battle this terminal disease? 19 years. 19 from, years. From 1984 to 2003. And so it was uh, it just never ended. It was just uh, in and out of hospitals and... He was in and out of the hospitals just about every month with major complications for about three to four years. He had so many problems with acute pericarditis and uh, another heart attack and, and the open heart surgery. And and uh, then he hit a period of time where he was quite stable for maybe about five years. We said quite stable. There was a lot of underlying things going on, but compared to what we'd gone through before, these were wonderful times where we decided to follow a dream that we'd always had, and that was to get an RV and go try to make our dreams come true. So we stepped up to the box, started living in our RV for five summers. And these were some of the most, you know, incredible special experiences where things were so different than the stress from at home, hospitals. And I think just the major time that we had to be together and such a less stressed pace helped his health tremendously. So there was a lot of joy and happiness in those 19 years. And a lot of terrifying times, too many to count. Well, you talk about your fear of the unknown nearly drove you mad. Absolutely. Because the cardiologist all told me that there was a time bomb, you know, in his chest. And we never knew when it was going to go off. And we were terrified that it would be that day were, or especially me, was I going to be prepared for that? How would we ever handle it? And so every day was just extremely fearful, but I kept that to myself because I wanted him to have the best quality of life for us to enjoy. And so I carried a lot of the major burdens, financial, physical, emotional. It was, it was very, very difficult. Don't the medical doctors explain in detail everything that you're probably going to uh, need to know? Absolutely not. They are so busy with so many different patients. They give you a very quick verbiage of what to expect and then just say, hey, got to go. And they're out of there. And so, you know, we were left with not knowing what to expect when we got home and I would be, you know, the major caregiver and working at my job and all this other thing of, you know, our normal life, it was very, very terrifying because I was afraid something would happen and I wouldn't know what to do. There so, were so many complications. Right. And so because of all of this care, a lot of changes have to happen at home. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I had to change, you know, everything I did, like from the way that I shopped for food, you know, to make sure that I got the best food, prepared the best food, to be completely ready for any major catastrophe that would pop up, and it did daily. 
go and get huge amounts of medication because he took about $2,200 worth of medicines on a normal month. And because of all the complications, they kept increasing, increasing. So I was always having to go to the pharmacy, and I kept a full-time job. And it was major that he had no stress. So I tried to take care of all the home situations, all the home problems, and the major problem being lack of money. The bills were astronomical. And I couldn't share that with him because I knew it would send him back to the ER and might take his life. And so it was it was very much a change and terrifying all at the same time. So your book, uh, the purpose of your book, uh, of course, it's to show people how uh, how to do more than just live. I mean, you've, you've got to somehow uh, keep yourself beyond the grueling uh, stress. Uh, I mean, how do you, uh, what did you do? What did, how did you bring yourself, well, keep yourself above well, it? Well, I used, I, I used a, a lot of tools that I found for myself that worked like uh, I would uh, always try to listen to music on my way to work to get myself into a uplifted frame of mind. And I tried to inject humor at work when I was around others. I tried to get a support system, but it was very limited at work. And these kinds of things that I did also were uh, journaling. I would try to release my fears and anxieties. I went to a health psychologist and tried to discuss my fears with them. And it was wonderful because they sat there and listened to me and did not judge any of my rambling thoughts and fears. And I was able to release a lot of that. And... I was so determined to do the very best that I could for my husband and to make every day very, very special for us as a couple. Did the, did the doctors ever give you some kind of timeline, um, you know, how much time he had left? Or uh, you knew eventually Sheldon would be gone, but you didn't know when. But did they ever give you, were able to give you any kind of a, a timeline? Absolutely. They had said in like 1989, they anticipated the way the progression of the disease was going, it would not be more than five years unless lifestyles were changed drastically, uh, meaning that he was so dependent on me for the fact that I was so aware of every situation he was going through and feeling. I was constantly watching if I saw something out of the order, I jumped to make sure that we tried to address that problem and get help for him. And so the greatest uh, uh, longevity thing that we did for ourselves was uh, be able to get to a, a smaller town, to move to a smaller town where I could be at home all the time. And my employer, where I had worked in the larger city, called me about two weeks after we moved and wanted to set me up in, in business right there in my home where I could put in my 40 hours at my discretion and they would set me up 
and our customers would think that I was still in the Austin area at my desk. And so this took a lot of stress off of both of us because I was there to keep an eye on him. He was more comforted because I was there. And we were able to just enjoy our special time just being together. When it finally happened, of course, we all hear about grief, the grieving process. Was the grief so much more than you ever expected? Oh, absolutely. It was like a knife went into my heart. It just, I, I just couldn't believe it. I had been, I had been so highly stressed for so many years, always worrying about that day. And the day prior to his death, he started having very heavy angina attacks. And I rushed him into the hospital and they kept him for about eight hours. And while there, they told us that his heart was enlarging and he had a huge heart and not thinking of the disease, I just said he had the biggest heart of anybody I knew. He was always trying to help people that that needed help and, and always there for me. And yes, he had a big heart. And they laughed and said that uh, they wanted him to stay in the hospital that night to run one more test. And he said, oh, he said, I would love to, but he said, I can't because today is our anniversary, or tomorrow is our anniversary. And he said, uh, you know, I have to be at home with my wife. And I said, let's stay, you know, I'll stay here. No, no. And we went home and within a matter of about three or four hours, he was gone, although I did not know it. Mm. He died before midnight. So the grief was absolutely horrendous and almost took me to my knees. So one of the purposes of your book is to help people to be able to get through what some might call a raw deal. Oh, absolutely. And that's, you know, where everybody everybody thinks that life is always going to happen to the other guy. It's never going to happen to you. Well, through my book, I show so many different instances of how I tried to change and give the best quality of lifestyle for both of us and to realize that things happen to us when we're least expecting it. We've been listening to Marianne Shevlin. She is the author of her book, Journey of My Heart, a memoir. Marianne, tell us how to get your book. This book can be ordered on Amazon. You can go in and Google it through Barnes & Noble. And I got some good news last week that the book has been out about 10 days and it's already in 14 European countries. So I'm very excited about that. Tremendous. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Marianne, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. I have enjoyed it, and thank you very much, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station.
why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Samson and Delilah. And the author is Arthur P. Day. And Art joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Art. Hi, Steve. How are you today? Great to have you with us. I'm going to read a couple things you've written about your book, Samson and Delilah. You say this, it's a sexual and emotional journey into middle age. The book is aimed at the baby boomers and those people looking for more than just a pot boiler to pass the time. It gives them a depth of character and a lush sexuality that will leave them feeling that someone has, however briefly, touched their lives in a meaningful way. So it's a real kind of snapshot of reality of what's going on, especially with the older generation? Indeed it is. Um, I try and uh, uh, get down in depth to what people of uh, the middle age and older are, are getting into, the kinds of decisions they have to make, the kinds of problems they face. Uh, and... Uh, Hopefully, I've succeeded. Art, tell us uh, why write the book. What was the motivation? Actually, uh, the book came to me first as a scene of a man beside the bed of his dying wife. Uh, And I wrote that down in a couple of pages. And then it seemed it needed more than just a couple of pages. And so, four years later, a book appeared. (laughs) It all went from that, that first scene of a man by, in the hospital by the side of his dying wife. I'm always amazed that you authors that can get some kind of idea like you're with the man beside his dying wife and then all of a sudden, like they say, the characters start talking and the book all of a sudden comes alive. Yeah, the characters take on lives of their own. Uh, I think most <laughs> authors will agree with me on that. You might have a, a story or a, a sketch of a plot down on paper, but once you start putting characters to it, uh, they sort of take over and it goes in directions you never suspected it would. Johnny Agile Walker. Agile must be a nickname. Yeah, he, uh, he was uh, fat and clumsy as a boy, 
And uh, he got the nickname when uh, he was walking along the sidewalk one day, tripped over a, an uneven riser and fell flat on his face, splitting his chin open. And uh, when he got the, uh, they got him to the doctor and he got his chin sewed up and a few days later, the doctor came in to uh, remove the stitches, and she said, "Oh, how's my agile walker doing today?" <laughs> and so, that's uh, where he got the nickname. So it stuck. So here he is <laughs> now, middle-aged, and he's estranged from his parents, but he's also having to watch his wife Beth lose her fight with cancer. So he's going through a lot. He is. This is not a good good time of his life. Uh, He's faced with uh, not only the death of his wife, but the fact that uh, her death ran up huge medical bills that uh, went past his uh, lifetime maximum. So he's forced to sell his house to uh, at least get even with everything. And uh, so that adds to his uh, burden that he has a daughter, Jennifer, and she's uh, in a stage of uh, rebellion she feels that his world is not hers and doesn't want any part to do with it and is going off and doing her own thing, um, which makes him wonder where he went wrong and how, how he could have changed things to uh, uh, have succeeded with her more fully. And what does he feel about his job? The job, it's, he's, it's a love-hate relationship. The job itself is... Uh, being on the phone, talking with uh, customers who call in with problems, uh, they uh, often as as often as not, they're not in a good mood when they talk to him. Uh, so it's a very stressful job. On the other hand, when Jennifer reproaches him for uh, a job that has no meaning and uh, doesn't accomplish anything, he defends it vigorously. So he's at this very. Uh crossroads time of his life uh he's got all these struggles all this stress and then he meets zinni jones yep Uh, and he uh, first sees her in uh, in the library uh, and then uh, meets her again when he's eating lunch outside and uh, they establish a uh, friendship zinni is has problems of her own she's uh taking care of her father, who is suffering from Alzheimer's. So that is, puts a lot of stress on her. Plus, uh, her job is not really, she's not really able to keep up with the uh, medical bills with her father and taking care of him. And physically, uh, she's beginning to wonder whether she will be able to cope with uh, getting a, a large nail up and down, changing the bed sheets and what have you. Uh, so she's stuck up against that hard rock as well. So she she's living in a house uh, that was part of a, what, a separation, a divorce? or Well, her father was a doctor, ah. uh, and uh, he settled into a poor area of uh, Hartford and tended to people who didn't have a lot of money. Uh, and uh, so he uh, gained respect and trust of the people in the area, but uh, didn't amass a great fortune. And Vinnie now has uh, the house uh, where she grew up uh, and is taking care of her father there. And her uh, ex, Mark, wants her to sell the house. Yeah, he's uh, 
he's a loser from the word go. Uh, and he got into trouble betting on the ponies down in uh, New Jersey. So now he needs money. Uh, otherwise, uh, his, uh, his rear end is going to be in deep trouble. Uh, so he thinks if he can come up and force Zinni to sell her house, uh, that uh, she'll give him some of the money and he can uh, square himself with uh, the um, mob figure that he's gotten entangled with. So he comes up and demands that she sell the house. Uh, she is not about to do that, uh, and he threatens to make her life a living hell unless she does so. So she decides that maybe if she rents out a room in the house, uh, that... Uh, that would be that would bring in enough money to pay him off and maybe even help her with her own bills. And thus, Johnny Agile Walker enters her life. Thus he does, yeah. He's looking for an apartment after selling the house. Can't find one he likes. Sees her ad in the paper for a room to rent, and it starts from there, or actually continues from there since they had already met. Now, one of the themes in your book is America's obsession with obesity. What do you mean by that? Uh, I think that as a society, we've become enamored with uh, uh, being green and being healthy and being uh, beautiful people. Uh, Not everybody is uh, born to be a beautiful person. And there is nothing wrong with uh, being obese. Obese people are not lazy, they're not stupid, uh, they're not doing this to put a big drag on the healthcare system. Um, I have great objections to uh, uh, people that think that uh, fat is uh, somehow indicative of character flaws. You characterize yourself as Joe Sixpack. <laughs> yeah, I really am. I'm really just like you or uh, the guy next to you. I'm not, uh, you know, I don't have a lot of uh, extracurricular things going on. I'm not a race car driver. Uh, I don't own a famous restaurant. Uh, When I finish work in the afternoon, I like to uh, uh, grab a beer or a drink and settle down in front of the TV with my wife. And so the book reflects a a lot of that kind of lifestyle thrown in with uh, problems that everybody kind of has in, in real life. Indeed, they do. Uh, And that's what I was hoping to accomplish when writing the book. Now, also, you talk about, uh, you have a theme of the American health care system. Yeah, I think we all have a theme with that. Uh, It's in the process of change. Whether it's good change or not is arguable, but uh, certainly uh, Agile finds himself the victim of it. Uh, And uh, to a certain extent, Zinni does as well. Uh, she's, uh, she debates uh, whether she has to put her father in a nursing home and how she's going to afford that. Uh, we have some great medicine in this country, but a lot of it is, uh, is unaffordable unless you've got a good uh, health care plan. Uh, and uh, how we're going to change that to make it more even, I'm not sure it's possible. Uh, I look at Europe and I look at uh, Britain and Canada, and uh, they all—they toot their their system, where the government pays everything and you pay everything to the government. But I'm not certain that that's the correct answer. 
You say you've attempted to travel inside the character so that they, the characters, and the reader become one. So that is quite a quite a goal. And how do you feel you accomplished your goal? I think I accomplished it to an extent. It was nothing if not ambitious, but I did work hard at achieving contact between reader and character. I hope I succeeded at least to some extent. And so we have a rather complex plot with twists and turns of, of it. In this case, you feel though, like often, that's really the only uh, f- uh, formula for the book, and the characters are kind of left out. The readers don't identify. But in this case, uh, these characters are really down to earth. Yes, I, I tried to make them uh, just like. Uh, everybody else. Uh, There are no great heroes in this book. There are no beautiful heroines. Uh, They're not walking off into the sunset at the end. Uh, They're really just like you and me, doing the best they can with the cards they've been dealt and hoping for the best uh, for the, uh, hoping they wake up vertical (laughs) every day. And there are many books centering on women, but very few that you found that deal with men going into middle age. Uh, that's true. Uh, there's a lot of uh, the women's market uh, gets a lot of attention because it's a preponderance of the market. Um, but I have yet to see too many books that deal with uh, the, the uh, inner problems and emotions and reactions of uh, a middle-aged man. You make this statement about uh, a theme in your book. The book is a sexual and emotional journey into middle age. Uh, how would you uh, uh, rate the book as far as a, a movie rating? What would you give it? I don't think it's movie material, but if I had to give it uh, rate it as a movie, I would give it a 7. A 7 out of 10, and it would yep. be a PG-13, R, what, what, how, how would you? It would depend on how the book was treated. If you stayed close to the book, you would have an R rating. Any other closing thoughts you'd like to share with us, Art? Uh, well, I'm very pleased uh, to be talking with you for a few minutes today. I hope that uh, people listening to the show will uh, at least uh, give the book a try. I think uh, many of them will find that uh, they identify with what's going on there, the characters, and what those characters go through. Uh, Thank you very much for talking with me, Steve. Well, appreciate you being with us, and I'll close on this uh, line uh, from the introduction. You say, together, Walker and Zinni jump through the hurdles and challenges that middle age throws at them in order to gain some satisfaction and joy out of lives that haven't quite met their expectations. So it's like... That old song that we talked about earlier before we started a recording uh, by Peggy Lee, is that all there is, right? Yeah, I think that uh, that puts it in a nutshell. Well, thank you, Art, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. How do we get your book? Uh, you can purchase the book online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Google Books, and iUniverse.com. Arthur P. Day, author of his book, Samson and Delilah. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! 
Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Monkey Business, 37 Better Business Practices Learned Through Monkeys. And the author is Heather Wandell. And Heather joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Heather. Hi, Steve. Well, it's, great. it's great to be here this morning. Well, great to have you with us. Uh, this is going to be a very unique discussion, obviously, from the title of the book. Let me read what you've written, just so everyone understands the the uh, kind of the breadth of this uh, book, and, and we'll get into the details. You say this, I have observed thousands of hours of human workplace behavior and hundreds of hours of monkey behavior and have found there is a connection. Each chapter or story makes a connection between monkeys and humans and offers a business or personal life practice at the end of each chapter to help life move forward. Also, you feel that probably no other book like this, uh, first time that a book has been written about the primate residence, and, and uh, you name Frisky's Wildlife and Primate Sanctuary in Woodstock, Maryland. We'll learn more about that and how this all has played into the publication of your book. But first of all, Heather, tell us a little bit about your background and how this book all came about. Well, thanks, Steve. That was a great introduction. Um, I, I am a certified laughter leader through the World Laughter Tour. I do speaking events and trainings on laughter, therapeutic laughter, and how to uh, look at things in a different way. So I put practices as well as just laughter uh, into or teach people practices, many of which are they're throughout the book. Each chapter will introduce another practice. 
So I speak in all different venues. Uh, there are, I don't think there is a venue that isn't attracted to or yearning for laughter in some way. So that is how I've, I've gotten into speaking. I've spoken to lawyers. I've spoken to doctors. I've spoken at conferences on childhood leukemia to bereavement groups. And when I say spoken to, I've also laughed with. Uh, at the same time, I received a, my master's degree in the applied healing arts at the Thai Sophia Institute in Laurel, Maryland. And when I, when I went there initially for just one class, we started uh, learning practices that help us to reduce our own mental suffering and look at things in another way that might bring some ease to the mind. And when ease is brought to the mind, ease is also brought to the body. So there's a real connection there. Um, that paired with finding the, the Centers for Spiritual Living and studying the science of mind philosophy through, through Ernest Holmes. I just saw such a connection through it all. And it was all about creating more, more ease and less suffering and more possibility in our life. And so my speaking engagements offer a piece of all that but it's titled usually Healing Laughter or, or uh, Laughter is Serious Business. <laughs> so how did you get connected with all these monkeys and how you saw the connection to write this book? Well, that, there's, so many, there's so many pieces to that, but I'll, I'll start with um, my son was in eighth grade, or he had just completed his eighth grade year, my son Brad, and he was, it was summer, and he was getting ready to go play football in high school in his ninth grade year. But he had a little time before football practice started, and I thought as a mother, well, you have a little too much free time, so maybe, maybe it'd be good to have some volunteer hours under your belt. So we went around to some different organizations, none of which seemed to be a great fit for him, but one organiz local organization said maybe your son would like to go up to Frisky's Wildlife and Primate Sanctuary. They, they you know, take um, young adults and, and give them opportunities learning about wildlife and nature. So I took him up there and immediately felt connected to Colleen Leighton Robbins. She gave us a little, she gives you a little serious talk when you first meet her. You know, well, this woman means business. She wants to know that people aren't coming there just because they want to sit and pet an animal. When you come, you need to work. You need to clean. You need to, you know, it's not just a, a sit-around place. So he was there for about a month and decided that, well, fecal management just wasn't for him. <laughs> <laughs> and he was really glad for the rigor, you know, the rigorous workouts of football to begin, which took up, well, you know, all of his time. So, but in that time, I had become um, fascinated with and in awe of Colleen Leighton Robbins and her mission um, 24-7, really, to save wildlife without being paid without accepting a paycheck. It was just a calling for her. And she doesn't call it a job. It's a mission of love for her. When an animal comes to her door in need, uh, she's, she's there to take care of it. So I was just in awe of that. I had never met somebody who was so willing to, I say, sacrifice 
going out with friends and going out with your husband and going on vacations. She doesn't use that word at all. She says, I couldn't have chosen a better life. I don't know how I got so lucky. So that was my connection, my first introduction to Friskies. And I started eventually writing some columns, some stories for their newsletter. And it wasn't until I'd been there maybe a year and I was at a World Laughter Tour conference because uh, I am a you know, certified laughter leader through World Laughter Tour and yearly would go to this conference. And there we had a speaker, Marilyn Sprague Smith, who taught us how to build a publicity for our business. And we paired up with partners and she said one of the good things, the best things to do to build publicity for your business is to, is to write something. She says, be it a book or a monthly column or a chapter in a book with other contributing authors. And so my partner and I started playing with that idea. And she says, oh, you work with monkeys. Write a column called Life is a Barrel of Monkeys. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I played with that idea. I thought there's something there. And on the flight back from Columbus, Ohio to Baltimore, I think the idea monkey business, better business practices learned through monkeys was born. And I started writing the monthly column for the newsletter, submitting it to newspapers, um, different publications, and then on my own website, and I created a mailing list. Uh, at the same time, I was going to the Thai Sophia Institute for the Healing Arts and learning practices that helped to create, helped us to see more possibility and, and reduce our own mental suffering. So it, it all tied in together around the same time. And... Uh, so I put all these wonderful teachers and teachings into the column. And, and just knew in teachers, the back of my mind when it got to be 50 columns, I would, I would make it a book. <laughs> I had to cut some of those out. But <laughs> and these teachers you talk about, these 24 teachers or these monkeys, these observations you've made, and you have uh, 37 stories in your book, or observations and interactions with the monkeys, and then you make that tie to... Uh, human interaction, human activity, uh, just a a very different approach. Yes, I really see a connection in things, just like a spider web. It's it's often hard for me to describe, to to word it. Um, But if if you think of the spider web, uh, one thread may not look like it's connected to the other, but cut that one thread and it weakens the whole web. So I see everything as a connection, and I just saw all these things coming together in my life is a connection. And I thought, well, how can I make this column more readable to a wider audience? Just writing about monkeys will appeal to people who like monkeys or people in the animal field. Um, How can I also offer, at the same time I wanted to be able to serve in a bigger way, you know, human animals, humans <laughs> as well. I wanted to serve my species as well, um, if I could make an offering. And, you know, what people do with it is is up to them. But I wanted to offer what I had learned through healing practices at the Thai Sophia Institute in Laurel, Maryland, and through Frisky's Monkeys. What's one practice that you could give us right now from the book that we could begin practicing now? Okay, well, that's a good question. There's, um, l- let me start with story versus phenomena. What happens is we see something. 
say, Steve, I walk into a conference room and you're sitting there with your arms crossed and you're not saying anything during the conference. That's phenomena. Steve is not speaking. His arms are crossed. He's sitting in that chair. That's just what is. And what the human mind does is we create a story around that. I could go out later and say, well, Steve was really pissed this morning. He didn't, he didn't say a word during that meeting. Something's eating him. So, which may or may not be true. You could have been sad. You could have been tired. You could have been cold. And so it's just the, the human tendency to create a story around a set of phenomena. And so the practice is to just spend the week noticing when these stories come into your head is to go back and just note what the phenomena is and question, is that the truth or have I just created a, a story around that that is making me angry or making me sad? You don't really know it until you ask the person directly, Steve, are you okay? You had your arms crossed this morning and you didn't say a word. I had this idea that you're angry. You know, you might have said, no, <laughs> I wasn't angry at all. I was just tired. <laughs> yeah, just maybe just in some kind of uh, pensive moment. Yes, or in a pensive moment, totally not at yeah. the meeting at all, right. thinking about something else. Right. Lord knows that's never happened at work <laughs> or in a meeting, huh? <laughs> So were, were there, are there monkeys there, uh, you know, the 24 of them in your book, they're all named and you describe them. Are there certain ones or one that you're more connected to and you learned more from? You know, uh, I would have to say that Gizmo, Gizmo is a rhesus macaque monkey, and you'll see a couple of his stories um, throughout the book. He was the first monkey that... Uh, came into the sanctuary. Um, so Colleen had him, acquired him, um, and there's a story in my book about how that happened. She didn't go out seeking a monkey. It was, it was a rescue situation. But he came into her life in 1989, quite unexpected. Um, but people knew that she was already working with other animals, so it seemed to them this is just another animal. And... So he's been there the longest, but he, I don't know if it's the proximity or the location of his enclosure that is in the direct path of where I work around or not, but he's, he has charmed me. He, he at times has given me the, the cold shoulder, so to speak, as we say in, in human ways, but to him it was throw his head up in the air, make these smacking sounds with his lip and storm off. And he was doing this quite a bit, quite frequently. <laughs> and I thought, he's really upset with me for some reason. You know, I pass him every day. I talk to him. What's, what's going on here? And then I realized that, you know, that's it. I was passing him. I wasn't stopping to take time for him. I was just throwing him a sweet, a sweet nothing. Hey, Gizmo. And he knew I wasn't taking the time. I wasn't present with him. So I started at that time um, going in and sitting next to him and, and reading a story to him. And I still do that every week. Hmm. And that's really strengthened our bond, our relationship. He knows that I'm there for him. 
What are the benefits of practicing the, the weekly practices at the end of each chapter? Well, if, if you're feeling, uh, you know, oftentimes we might use the word stuck or feeling frustrated that something isn't working quite like we would like it to or a situation doesn't feel good, putting a new practice into your life and, and really spending a week around it or, or more could make a difference. So it's an offering. This book is an offering of a way to shift a situation where somebody is suffering. And you see, what happens, uh, brain research has shown that every thought we have creates a molecular um, imprint you know, or, or action in the substance of the brain. And so when we repeat the same thought, the same molecular action is imprinted in the brain and creates grooves or channels. And that's how habits are formed. So then we don't even have to really think about it because it's just so natural that that way of thinking or being flows through that channel. We can create another channel. And so when we're finding that something isn't feeling right or not working, a new practice may be called for that makes you feel better. So that's what I'm offering. You know, this is not a cure-all book. Nothing's broken. You know, nothing needs to be fixed. But it's if you want to think about something from a different vantage point that may create a better feeling in your mind and body and more ease, then I offer these practices. And you also have a list, 10 reasons to buy this book. We've talked about a few uh uh, to realize that you are the agent for changing your life, uh, to gain a new understanding of relationships, to increase your flow of creativity, to give a second chance at life. There's a number of them here, and we've just about run out of time discussing monkey business, 37 better business practices learned through monkeys. Of course. <laughs> and Heather Wandell, she is the author. Heller, Heather, tell us how to get your book. The book is available on Amazon. If you just type in my name or the title of the book, you'll, you'll find it there. It's available through iUniverse and through the Barnes & Noble website. You can also visit my website at anotherwaytoseeit.com or Frisky's Wildlife Primate Sanctuary website at www.friskies.org. And a portion of your proceeds from the book, from the sale of your book, will go to Frisky's. Absolutely. There's a portion of proceeds. Um, it is a, a, almost a false belief to believe that the author gets rich off of a book. So, <laughs> <laughs> so a portion of it, the, the publisher does, um, you know, take some of that profit too. So, yes, a portion of the, of the proceeds goes to Frisky's Wildlife and Primate Sanctuary for primate and wildlife care. Thank you, Heather, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. It was a pleasure iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.